0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome,
1: welcome, welcome. Welcome Welcome to The Roy Green Show Podcast.
0: This time on The Roy Green Show Podcast, Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe on issues of national interest and concern just before the Premier's meeting in Ontario. The clear dangers of vaping with Dr. Sandy Buckman, President of the Canadian Medical Association and respirologist Dr. Theresa Martineau Catherine Swift and Dan McTague, and their views of the Eco-Fiscal Commission advising a more than quadrupling of the carbon tax, and a national security expert, Dr. Christian Lufrecht, on why Canada must say no to any Chinese involvement in the soon-to-come Canadian 5G network, and CHQR Calgary's Jock Wilson on the departure of now Flame's former head coach, Bill Peters. Premier, uh, so Saskatchewan and Alberta sent, and Western Canadians beyond uh, the two provinces, sent the Trudeau Liberals a very significant message on the 21st of October. Now, I'm curious how you see the federal government, and now a minority reality, having responded. Your, Your visit with the now Deputy Prime Minister Freeland... And uh also has the Trudeau government through the deputy prime minister offered you any significant assurances of any kind concerning bills C69 and and C48
2: can we start with that Yeah I I would say nothing of, of vast significance uh, yet and it might be just early to expect uh you know a a, a start could, uh, or or large change in direction just yet but I I will give credit where credit's due uh the, the the federal government, this minority administration, has has reached out and engaged. Uh, I'll speak for myself and and for our province of Saskatchewan. Uh, they've engaged. They've listened. Um, I had a, a lengthy meeting with the deputy prime minister uh, the other day, and I would say it was a an engaging meeting. Uh, there was a good uh, good conversation back and forth on, you know, not only on a new deal uh, for our province, but on how we we can. Uh, uh, potentially collaborate to enhance our our opportunities abroad, if you will, um, and, and, and enhance our opportunities to continue to get our products abroad. So it was it was a good discussion. But what where the the proof will be is in the action. And and we all heard the prime minister's uh, words that evening that he he identified and understood the frustrations of again. I'll speak to Saskatchewan people. Um, and he was wanted to be there to support them. So it's all good to engage and listen, and I give them full credit for that. Um, but there needs to be action at the end of the day, and we'll be uh, we'll be looking for that in the days, weeks, months ahead.
0: What do you uh, predict? What can you tell us about what the key issues will be for the premiers when you're all seated together, when you're talking about the issues that are confronting this country, confronting our regions, confronting the provinces? What are the key issues that are going to be on the table?
2: Well, the, the key issues, uh, well, first, we're going to be looking for issues where we can come to a consensus. This isn't a broad-based meeting where we're going to try to cover as many topics as we normally would at a at a regular annual uh, Council of the Federation meeting. This meeting was brought together in light of the, the deep divisions uh, in various areas of this country that manifested themselves in the results that we all observed as Canadians on election night. There was a number of premiers that had reached out to me and asked if if we could come together uh, to have this meeting to find uh, some some steps forward uh, not only for potential guidance for the for the federal government and if there's you know 10 provincial premiers and three territorial premiers that come to a consensus on a topic i would i would think it would be in the federal government's best interest to pay attention uh, to uh, that you know that consensus-based uh, decision, um, but also to to uh, show Canadians that there is strong leadership at the provincial level, and uh, we, although we come from different stripes and different backgrounds, and most certainly represent uh, different uh, and diverse regions of this country, uh, that we can we can work well together. So. You know you're going to see discussions around environmental assessments. You're going to see discussions around likely equalization as well as uh, and probably a deeper discussion into the fiscal stabilization program, where there are some real opportunities, uh, I think, for us to to uh, craft a some suggestions to make that program much more responsive to. Uh, provinces that have had a a dip or or sudden downturn in their in their economic fortunes. So, uh, you know, those are two examples where I think you'll see some active discussion uh, from provincial leaders from coast to coast to coast.
0: Well, let me just uh, focus on two of those issues that you mentioned, uh, and these are issues that I think are of significant interest to all Canadians and critical of critical interest to to many. The first one is the equalization formula issue, which pets... At its most fundamental, now, today, I think, Western Canada, particularly Alberta, against the province of Quebec. Uh, unfortunately, that's the way it's playing out in the minds of, of many people in, in, in maybe both provinces and right across the country. So equalization, uh, Premier Kenney is talking about wanting to uh, revisit uh, the, the equalization formula and perhaps constitutionally change it um, and have a, have a have a referendum on it. And the other issue is the one of pipelines, and the pipeline issue is extremely—I don't have to tell you this is so extremely important and fundamental to the discussion and the debates and the questions that are being raised in this country. Can you would you just take take on both of those in, in in that order, please?
2: Well, let's let's yeah. With the the equalization is one of the ways in which we share wealth across this nation, and and it has garnered a lot of attention lately. I've been some of. Uh, you know, providing that attention to that program, is there are areas of our country that that believe the the program parameters are inherently unfair. Uh, there are also other areas of this country that are reliant on on uh, receiving equalization and balancing uh, their their provincial books. And so, here's the dilemma that we have in this nation: um, the that is a longer term program that will take some some effort at both the provincial and more so the federal level to, to change. And, it, you know, it's Saskatchewan's belief that there is unfairness in that program. And that's coming from a province that has collected in the past and and it hasn't collected for the last decade or so. Uh, the other program that comes in behind the equalization program, which is the slower moving, uh, more predictable program, uh, but is the, the fiscal stabilization program, which is there to... Uh, provide investment in economies that have had experienced a sudden downturn, if you will, or a decrease in their GDP growth. And when you look at the fiscal stabilization program, there are very few provinces that have collected uh, anything from that program over the course of the last decade or so. And, and, and it has some parameters in it, some per capita caps, uh, um, some of the triggers uh, that I think need to have some discussion so that if it truly is there to be a reactive, responsive program, uh to uh, drop in in your gdp growth in in certain areas not just today but for provinces uh, into the years ahead 5 and 10 years down the road um we should look at that and and that's what we're going to uh, do is have a, a real good look i believe into the fiscal stabilization plan is that's one or program that's one that could be could be uh corrected or or altered in fairly short order to be more responsive for, for all Canadians, ultimately. Premier, if um, I can get you just to hold yeah. for a
0: second, and I have to take a break, sure. but I'll come back and I'll ask you about the pipeline issue. We're speaking with Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, who will be chairing the Premier's conference on Tuesday. It's not a regular COF uh, meeting. It's the premiers getting together to discuss the issues that were raised prior to the election and really have become uh, a clear focus after the election. We'll talk to Premier Moe, about uh, the pipeline issue, also the carbon tax uh, remains a, a major issue with the Canadian Eco-Fiscal Commission. I'm not quite sure what that is, uh, but we're going to talk about it, uh, suggesting that um, the carbon tax need to be at least quadrupled in order to meet the Paris climate change goals. And then there's the issue of, and it's nagging, it's one of those nagging issues, about um, national unity, Premier. Before we get up to the other issues that I was going to mention to you, and we're going to, have to rush through some of these points because there's the time always. The clock always gets us, even though we have half an hour. But you're, there's going to be an announcement made by you, uh, Premier Ford of Ontario, Premier Higgs of New Brunswick, uh, in the next is it 24 hours
2: about nuclear reactors in this country. What can you tell us? well we've we've been looking at uh, small nuclear reactors uh, in the provinces of Saskatchewan uh, to replace uh, some of our our coal-fired power and we have some choices as we move forward carbon capture and storage uh, uh, small modular reactors are part of that choice and and we want to uh, you know investigate the potential of that very very seriously it is a, a very uh, real option for Saskatchewan as as we have about 30 percent of our of our power is still being produced by by unabated coal. We have some additional that is has some carbon capture and storage on it, so it's uh, cleaned up. But we uh, we have to make some choices as we move ahead, and I think this is a, a significant announcement where three provinces are coming together to uh, in, to uh, you know move forward uh, wherever they can together on uh, on this type of a technology and. And uh, indicative of what provinces are doing, uh, where they can uh, work together to clean up our, our emissions profile here in the nation without a, a carbon tax. I would note these are three, three provinces that are, are in the Supreme Court with the federal government uh, challenging uh, their carbon tax policy.
0: So the three provinces, Saskatchewan, New Brunswick, and Ontario, would work together on this project. And, and ultimately, uh, all the, uh, the residents of all three provinces, and by extension the country, would benefit
2: Clearly for certain and in saskatchewan 's case um, you know we have a forty percent reduction target uh, we we can achieve that through you know natural gas with some degree of renewables if we are able to go to uh, small modular reactors that forty percent uh, uh, target actually becomes more of a of a seventy percent or eighty percent reduction target with uh, with small modular reactors because they are a zero emissions profile without even incorporating uh, in any of those uh, those said renewables. so it's it's a pretty exciting technology, and we're uh, we're pretty thrilled to uh, to make an announcement with two other provinces uh, to look at at uh, what technologies are available and potentially uh, maybe even get through to procuring a technology.
0: so what do you expect uh, by way of response then from uh, from Ottawa from Prime Minister Trudeau who is absolutely committed to his carbon tax and now we have the uh, the the eco Fiscal commission um, Saying or th- that we need at least a quadrupling of uh, the carbon tax in this country in order to meet the Paris climate change or Climate Accord uh, requirements.
2: Well, it, it would do us uh, much better to uh, for the federal government to look at ways that they could participate in uh, in uh, uh, working with provinces uh, like the three uh, New Brunswick, Ontario, and Saskatchewan that are going to make. Uh, you know, a significant strides and uh, efforts uh, in an announcement like tomorrow to reduce our emissions. This is how you address a uh, global issue: is by sharing innovation and technology across our nation and and by extension around the world. You don't you don't address a global problem by taxing your citizens. Uh, and we've always uh, said that we have the Eco Fiscal uh, uh, Committee here. You know, you know <laughs> they're coming out with their reports. Uh, of um, quadrupling the carbon tax uh, in in this nation they're, they're really foreshadowing uh, for the federal government in the hopes that the federal government would pick up uh, some of their policies and you know I, I've read a few of their reports and I've said on your show and and on other shows uh, they, they they tell part of the story uh, the, the reports that they reference as a carbon tax being effective are are they, they they reference a number of other items that the eco Commission just conveniently leaves out, like everyone in the world is supposed to do it uh, in order for it to work. Uh, you're supposed to remove all of your other carbon-based legislation and regulations uh, for it to work. Uh, the Ecofiscal Commission uh, only tells part of the story uh, when it comes to uh, talking about a carbon tax being actually effective. It's not effective at $50. It's not effective at $215 or $10 either. <laughs>
0: No, and they they name themselves a commission. They're not a government agency, so uh, that's that's worth mentioning. No, they're
2: well. a bunch. they they're they're a collection of academics.
0: Yeah, and they have uh, Mr. and Mr. Martin, as a, on their advisory panel. But who knows how involved they are? And I believe Mr. Chrétien may be on on the board of Azerbaijan Oil, so there could be a conflict of interest.
2: I don't know. <laughs> here's here's <laughs> where this lands uh, from Saskatchewan's perspective. Uh, uh, we're drying a lot of our grain this year, Roy. A uh, $3,700 $3, grain drying cost uh, this year. Um, and I can line you up, farmers that have a cost of, of that, and most of them are higher. But if you had a $3,700 cost of grain drying this year, by the time the eco fiscal uh, would get their wishes, that would be $38,000 uh, for, for the same amount of grain drying with the carbon tax. And the average net farm income in our province is $39,000. So just a Maybe an example of how absolutely ridiculous this policy is. Uh, how it would tax an industry that is providing food, the most sustainable food to the world, and uh, and would essentially they're using the the very latest technology as it is today. So that that's that's really the the unrealistic uh, uh, goals that the Ecofiscal Commission has.
0: Premier Mo, let me come back to the issue of the nuclear reactors. So on, Ontario. Uh, New Brunswick, Saskatchewan, the announcement made tomorrow by you and your fellow premiers. Now, on Tuesday, is this going to be part of the discussion? Do you think there's an opportunity or a likelihood that other provinces will get on board and say, we want to be part of this as well, and then you'll be able to present a a united front
2: on this approach to the federal government? Well, yeah, on on Monday is when we're going to be I'm sorry, I keep saying Tuesday, yeah. Sorry. The small modular reactors are... uh, you know, relevant for these three, uh, these three, these three provinces or jurisdictions. There's others that may be interested, and we've talked with others about it. Um, as you know, uh, there's some areas that have some excess hydropower uh, in this in this nation as well, and and uh, there's opportunities to procure that around uh, as well. But uh, these are the three that are, are fairly interested in it at this point. Uh, Ontario has a history of nuclear power as well, and and have made uh, paid the price uh, <laughs> literally. Uh, for much of the conversion and the uh, the emissions reductions uh, in this province of Ontario, so uh, we're we're happy to be moving forward with these three. If there's others that want to join, we most certainly um, will uh, you, you know entertain that for sure. Um, and I don't I don't I don't think we're looking for a consensus on small modular reactors, but I think when you look at what they can do uh, for uh, base load power and the emissions profile, of, which is zero, uh, by the way, um, it is. You know, it is it is something that all premiers, uh, I think all Canadians would be pretty fond of.
0: I have literally 20 seconds left. Oh, I wanted to spend so much more time on it, but the issue of Western alienation.
2: It's a challenge and it's real. And uh, it's real because of the policies that have been put forward over the course of the last four years. And this is why we have asked the Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister... Uh, to take action on the words and the frustrations that were realized on on the federal election night, uh, we're going to work very closely, uh, trying to, attempting to uh, to help the federal government uh, in the change of those policies so that we uh, can can continue as a strong nation where we respect right. uh, not only uh, the diversity of our people from coast to coast to coast, but the diversity of how we create wealth.
0: Premier, thank you so much for the time. Always good talking to you.
2: Great, Roy. You have a great weekend. Thank you. You too.
0: Premier Scott Moe, who will chair the uh, Premier's meeting on Monday. I don't know why I keep saying Tuesday. On Monday in Mississauga, Ontario. This is something we started last weekend, and we talked to Dr. Gigi Osler, the past president of the Canadian Medical Association, about the issue of vaping, and the Ontario teen who found himself in a very, very... A critical situation, as far as his health was concerned, was facing a potential double lung transplant. And as we talked about vaping with Dr. Osler, it became very clear that we needed to do more of this, talk more. And emails that I received to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com over the week underscored that. And in some cases, it was parents emailing me saying, we don't really know as much about the vaping issue as we should. And that story about the Ontario teen has been terrifying. Well, joining us uh, on the show today is the president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Sandy Buckman. Dr. Buckman's been a guest on this program in the past. Good to have you back, Dr. Buckman. Thank you for taking the time.
3: Oh, not at all, Roy. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, and Dr. Teresa Martineau respirologist. Uh, she was a member of the medical team caring for the Ontario teen, and had a double lung transplant been necessary, Dr. Martineau would have been directly engaged with recovery from the surgery. She's, as I said, a respirologist. Dr. Martinu. good to talk to you. Thanks for taking the time today.
4: Hi, Roy. Thanks for having me.
0: Let me start with you, Dr. Martineau. Knowing what you know now of the teen's uh, interaction and vaping, uh, maybe you can tell us some, something about that, which caused popcorn lung. People are asking, what's popcorn lung? No real surprise that a teen in Ontario was placed on life support with a severe vaping-related condition. Would you say that's true? Uh,
4: Whether that's a surprise, it's not a surprise. I think many of us would say we were in some ways waiting for something like that to happen, and uh, about a week before it happened, I was just thinking about all the agents that are um, contained in the vaping substances and wondering whether I would get a call like this at some point, and it was uh, very sobering that I got that call about a week later.
0: And what, how can you explain to us, in, in maybe as much as possible, in layman's terminology, what happened to this young man and what popcorn lung is?
4: Sure. So maybe I'll just go over his uh, clinical course very briefly. He uh, vaped for about five months. He was a previously completely healthy 17-year-old, uh, no medical issues, no lung issues, and uh, was vaping daily for five months and then developed cough, shortness of breath, some fever over about a week presented to the emergency room initially thought of having an infection treated with antibiotics but a week later he represented to the hospital needed to be admitted a week later he was on uh, life support on a ventilator and then a further week later he actually was not even stable on a ventilator and needed um, a higher level of life support that we call ECMO extracorporeal membrane oxygenation where we run the blood through sort of a lung machine outside of the body This is the highest level of life support that we can provide for respiratory failure. And this patient was really um, at the brink of death at that point. Um, We were all worried about him tremendously. And the London team that was taking care of him contacted my lung transplant team, essentially asking whether we could consider and think about a lung transplant for him if he does not get better. At that point, we had him transferred to the Toronto General Hospital um, and were planning to assess him, although within about a week, he actually improved on very high-dose steroids. Wow.
0: Dr. Buckman, this really speaks to the uh, concern and the national concern and the concern of the Canadian Medical Association about the issue of vaping and the message that you have for the politicians who have the opportunity to take some action. Would you address that, please?
3: Yes, certainly. So um, what an incredible and startling story and of course um, we were worried that uh, why 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 is the government waiting to do something when these things are clearly happening? Are we going to wait for actually a young person to die because of this? Um, we we feel that youth vaping has become a public health emergency and that we need to act. To act now, uh, we a coalition um, of uh, of interested organizations, such as Smoke Free Canada, um, Heart and Stroke Foundation, a number of other organizations, um, with the CMA uh, presented to the uh, Ministry of Health, the federal Ministry of Health, and we spoke to the um, to the Deputy Minister and his team. Oh, probably now back in October, requesting an interim order to um, prevent uh, the promotion and marketing of uh, vaping products uh, to youth. Um, As uh, might have been said already on the show, youth vaping among 16- to 9-year-olds increased by a dramatic 74% uh, from 2017 to 2018. One-fifth of high school kids now report that they're using vaping products and about one-seventh of children who are as young as 13 and 14. So... Um, the you know the the great flavors the um, vanilla and lavender and all the uh, cosmetic marketing is of great concern. Um, we uh, we know that we when uh, when Canada was a leader uh, re- regulated the market promotion of tobacco products to youth in the early two uh, thousands. It really decreased the. Um, The incidence of smoking, we were really getting somewhere. And now we're seeing a complete uh, reversal of that. These uh, cartridges, for example, often have very high levels of nicotine, um, about three times what they have, say, in the European Union right now. And so it's a portal to addiction in addition to these acute uh, and life-threatening respiratory syndromes. So um, we're very much in trying to uh, at least... Get the federal government to um, to ban the promotion and marketing to youth,
0: Dr. Martin. You, uh, what Dr. Buckman just shared with us, and what you shared with us before, and then I look at the Compass data. Compass is an organization that follows students and. Among Ontario students participating in Compass in 2018-2019, 28% of males and 23% of females aged 15 to 19 have used e-cigarettes at least once in the last 30 days. Um, You and I were talking on, when you and I had an off-the-air conversation, Dr. Martin, I told you about following, in my car, following a small vehicle, and uh, suddenly there was this big uh, cloud of smoke that came out of the car. Initial thought was the car's on fire, and and it kind of makes people giggle a little bit because then you realize it was vaping. But that is the scary reality. These kids are doing this. They don't maybe they don't recognize because what could happen? Let me get to the point here. Somebody's going to die, right? If we, things don't change, Doctor Martin, Someone's going to die. <laughs> Someone will be like the 17-year-old uh, Ontario student, but it's not going to be savable
4: yeah I mean uh, people have died forty seven people have died in the u s the u uh, s right? reported on the on the CDC no Canadian as far as we know at to this point this uh, young young man was close and fortunately recovered but I think uh, you know I think we can say people have died from vaping already What is popcorn lung? Oh yes I didn't answer your question I'm sorry <laughs> it's all right. so popcorn popcorn lung is uh, interestingly um caused by a, a substance caused, uh, called diacetyl um the official um, name for this disease is bronchiolitis obliterans which is sort of a convoluted name and that's why we prefer to say popcorn lung, it's much faster. It was first discovered in in the people um, in the factory workers that worked in in the microwave popcorn industry mixing the butter flavoring agents. Uh, The butter flavor actually is a synthetic flavor that uses this uh, chemical substance uh, called diacetyl and it's uh, actually uh, safe for ingestion. It's uh, de-approved for ingestion. And uh, um, however, it's toxic when it's aerosolized and inhaled. It's very toxic to the mucosa in the lungs and causes uh, death of the epithelium or the, or the lining of the lungs and scarring of the small airways. And that's what we found. Um, in this uh, young man, um, we couldn't uh, find pathologic diagnosis because he was too sick for a biopsy. But all the signs that we could identify pointed towards this diagnosis with uh, really a preservation of the air sacs of the lung and what looks, uh, looked like inflammation and maybe scarring of the small airways with obstruction of the airways um, and inflammation of the airways on pathology as well.
0: And just to underscore, this was a previously healthy 17-year-old.
4: This was a previously healthy 17-year-old, and I, I'm sorry, I just meant, meant to say uh, inflammation on the biopsy. We didn't actually find airways on the biopsy, just to be uh, correct.
0: Okay, Let me take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll talk more with Thank my you. guests about uh, this issue of um, vaping. Uh, Dr. Sandy Buckman, president of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Teresa Martin, a respirologist, and she, again, was a member of the medical team caring for the Ontario teen. <laughs> We're back with uh, Dr. Sandy Buckman, the president of the Canadian Medical Association, and Dr. Teresa Martineau, respirologist in Toronto. um, And uh, again, was on the medical team caring for that 17-year-old who was very close to death from um, vaping-related reality. We have about five minutes left. Rather than my asking you questions, by the way, I asked a young, very young person on the other side of the glass, very young to me. Uh, what's it going to take to get the message out? Does somebody have to die? And the answer came back to me: probably for for young for kids to get it. Uh, that's not a it's not something I want to subscribe to, but it's not something I'm willing to toss out the window either. What do you say, Doctor Buckman? I mean, how do you get the message out
4: to kids? Yeah, I I think it's important to remember, as we said before, um, young people have died in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and uh, so I have an echo here, so it's a little bit difficult to hear, but um...
0: Can you hear me okay, Doctor Martin? Are you okay? Are you still there?
4: Yes, I hear you now. Okay. So I think what's really important is that young people do hear the message, and I think uh, this has not been discussed that much uh, up to now, and I think seeing all these cases happening um, in the U.S. and Canada, and probably more cases will be apparent around the world, well, needs to be discussed further. And I think if young people at least hear the message and understand the, the dangers, they can make a little bit more of an informed decision. We would like to see some regulations that can protect them, but I think both young people and adults having more information is key.
0: You mm-hmm. uh, want to take that on, Dr. Buckman? Uh, how, how do you get the message out to kids? I mean, maybe the conduit is the parent.
3: Well, yes, I agree that uh, public education uh, of both uh, parents and uh, youth uh, is, is critical. I mean, this is a really serious um, public health problem. Right. And, I, and at least they're beginning to act. In various provinces, so BC now has strong uh, strong legislation and a tax on vaping, which is going to um, make uh, a big difference. But I think we need standardized uh, policy and regulation uh, across the country. And uh, just as the way tobacco, uh, the education about tobacco and cigarette smoking was so key, it can work. Um, it would be t- tragic to see that someone actually dies from this uh, before the, mm-hmm. the message actually gets out. Yes. And so I think it's imperative for the uh, government to act. And I'm, t- I'm very concerned that, in fact, uh, they haven't acted to this point uh, in time. So uh, there are some you know, counterclaims that it's really useful as a smoking cessation tool. But we have to remember there are kind of two different populations um, that are doing this. The the profile that we're seeing for youth and I uh, Young adult vapor suggest this uh, recreational approach to vaping, and it's the older group who is seeing it as smoking cessation product, for which the evidence is not great. Even the World Health Organization sort of counters that it may be a great uh, smoking cessation tool. So uh, it's not only, the, um, I think, the, the threat of these, uh, the life-threatening inju- uh, injuries that we're uh, seeing, but it's, uh, it's really the whole aspect of this is also a portal to addiction. And so those messages have to get out as well. It's just really too soon to let it be sort of free and available on every convenience store and gas station for young people. And um, it's time-tacked.
0: Yeah, you know, when when you were just talking about um, addiction and uh, maybe... Uh, leading to uh, use of tobacco, you know, you start with the uh, you start with the vaping, and then you go to the cigarettes. We have to remember that forty thousand plus people in Canada die annually of tobacco-related illnesses. We can't have exactly. a feeder. We can't have a feeder program, regardless of how it's marketed. I mean, yeah, you know, I
3: couldn't. I couldn't agree with you. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and so that's another message that has to be uh, has to be made clear. Um, you know, there are, um, you know, the, some of the uh, manufacturers are claiming that these hospitalizations are mainly due to uh, contaminated ca- cannabis-based products. Those are misleading. Uh, we have to get the, uh, the true information. So the, uh, the story that Dr. Martineau has just changed, today—that that is what's happening. It's not necessarily about contaminated ca- cannabis-based products. We just don't know yet. So uh, we need Health Canada to also require mac, uh, manufacturers to go for authorization under the Food and Drug Drag, Drug Act um, as well to make any therapeutic claims about these pro- about these uh,
0: products. Okay, we have about a minute left, Dr. Martin. Why don't you say? Don't, I mean, you 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 know that young man. You treated him. Uh, I'm sure you spoke with him. You may still be in contact with him. Uh, sounds like you are. What what are your words to young people listening to this program right now? What do they need to know right now?
4: Yeah, I think it's really important to stay informed. Um, I was just thinking about how I have a 12-year-old and she sees other people vaping at her school, and it's, it's really worrisome as a parent to be watching this, and it was a very scary to see this young man because you, of course, extrapolate this to your own life. I think uh, young people just need to really uh, pay attention and learn and read about it. Um, and then the other thing I would, w- would want people to know is that, you know, this is addictive. This is really hard to quit once you start doing. Um, sometimes people do need medical attention and medical help. Talk to your doctor, talk to your parents or other adults who can help you and there are safe nicotine uh, products that can help with uh, smoking um, and vaping cessation that are much safer than resorting to vaping.
0: Alright, thank you both very much for joining us. Dr. Sandy Buckman, President of the Canadian Medical Association, Dr. Teresa Martineau, Respirologist uh, in Toronto. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Catherine Swift, former president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, economist, now WorkingCanadians.ca, and Dan McTagg, former Liberal MP, now the president and founder of Canadians for Affordable Energy. And before we say a single word more, Catherine, what's yes? the what's the name of this segment?
5: Well, this segment is called Beauty and the Beasts. <laughs> <laughs> A little switcheroo on the usual. (laughs) A little switcheroo.
0: That was so good. That is so good. Beauty and the Beast. How do you feel about that, Dan?
6: Uh, Well, you know, I've been called worse.
0: (laughs) And Uh, probably
6: today. That's usually because it's associated with my previous uh, job as a Liberal Member of
0: Parliament. (laughs) Okay. Well, I've been called worse than a beast in the last half hour, if I'm reading my emails. so (laughs) <laughs> Off we go. So we look. We have this eco fiscal commission. I'm I'm not sure, and I don't want to deride them. I don't know what they are though. They'll be t- the commissioner will be on with us tomorrow. But they're not a government agency. It has an impressive title. They have Gretchen Martin and business executives on the advisory board. But what is your understanding of what this commission is about, and what do you make of the uh, of their final recommendation? And that is that the carbon tax in this country has to be more than quadrupled in order to meet the Paris Climate Accord objectives. Catherine, why don't you start us off?
5: Well, this Ecofiscal Commission, I I, I suspect they are basically a shill for the Liberal government. When you look at who's participating in it, um, it's basically a bunch of liberals, quasi-liberals, and so on. Uh, One of the people that uh, is, and I don't know if he might have started it, Dominic Barton, who used to be a big uh, poobah with McKinsey, um, that international consulting company, and he's—he was recently named Canada's ambassador to China, uh, by Trudeau, um, and he and his hench persons with this uh, uh, commission have always taken. Um, a big interventionist government you know approach to any kind of issue on the carbon tax I mean before the federal election, there was a lot of talk about how if we were going to meet Paris, which basically no country around the world is so let 's not fool ourselves here, but if we were. The carbon tax would have to be increased ridiculously high, as as the Eco-Fiscal Commission now post-election is saying. And at the time, the Environment Minister, Catherine McKenna, denied that would ever happen. So there's a lot of rats that smell here to me.
0: (laughs) Now, Dan, let me just take this uh, to the next step and ask you to answer this one. So more than quadrupling the national carbon tax, and of course... The Commission says there's no reason to worry because Canadians will have their additional expenses returned through rebates. I know you like to get into that.
6: Yeah, baloney. Uh, and you know what? Uh, it really depends on having uh, the kind of summer that we saw two years ago or three years ago or winter, where we had a relatively warmer winter. That doesn't happen anymore. There's a whole pile of reasons, ironically, for that. And they have little to do with uh, the amount of carbon in the air. But if you look at uh, The way most people have had to draw down on that 165 to 307 dollars they got to cover the heating and other transportation costs, most people are now sunk. Most people have also recognized secondary costs have increased. Look at the price of food at the grocery store just in the past year alone. I think most people recognize very clearly, and I think soon, the parliamentary budget officer will probably make the same kind of same conclusion. The rebate, 80 percent of people getting more than what they actually. Have to fork out in terms of ever increasing carbon taxes. Well, it simply won't add up. More importantly, Ottawa's planning the Clean Fuel Standards Act, so uh, that'll add a few more cents uh, uh, to cost your bottom line. Uh, look at uh, uh, existing regulations on industry, particularly on small business, and let's not forget the uh, in here in Ontario, uh, the wonderful Green Energy Plan, uh, which continues to hammer small business medium-sized businesses and ultimately passed on to consumers save and accept if you get an exemption from some of the larger as some of the largest emitters do but all that's going to come to an end and of course uh, we have organizations like eco fiscal coming out and serving as flax and apologists really for the uh, the climate change hysteria uh, i suspect that you're going to find that uh, many canadians are gonna have a hard time making ends meet if we go to 210 dollars Uh, as uh, recommended, in order to meet our commitments. And forget what uh, the rest of the world is laughing at us, because they're not. Especially the United States, that says they're not going to be held hostage to a $100 billion payout uh, to give to other countries like China, so they can just sort of figure it out down the road. For most Canadians, expect another $1,000 a year to heat your home, Uh, expect to pay probably the same amount for gasoline. And I'm sorry, Ottawa is not going to be cutting you that check. We certainly know they won't be paying back the uh, GST or HST, which is uh, taxed on top of that.
0: Now, Catherine, when it comes to the issue of the carbon tax, quadrupling it is probably going to make people uh, jump out of their chairs, not just sit straight up. But Uh, but let me finish. As we were getting to the end of the election campaign, or even halfway through the election campaign, the The issue of uh, carbon tax seemed to be more favorably uh, received by Canadians, as the climate change argument was gaining more and more traction. What do you think? Go- what do you think the reaction is going to be to this uh, well, recommendation? Well, you know,
5: there's been a lot of uh, polls and research and surveys and whatnot done, and what they have consistently found is that. People generally, yeah, everybody wants to do something to help the environment. But when it comes to them actually anteing up real money out of their pocket, suddenly things change quite dramatically to the negative. And I I find it, I hear the climate apologists out there uh, talking about how well, because... You know, 60, if you added up what the Greens, the NDP and the Liberals got in the election, you come up with this, oh, 60-odd percent of Canadians voted, you know, for Green policies. No, they didn't. <laughs> you you could isolate any one policy and make up wacky numbers like that. So I I don't buy that people really were viewing it that much more favorably. I think the election results hinged on quite a, a lot of different variables, one of which undoubtedly was, you know, green issues, the carbon tax, and so on. But I think once people, and we know, Roy, you and I have talked about it many times, Canadians are feeling pinched to the maximum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're teetering on the brink of yes. being broke yes. right now, a majority of Canadians. So the notion of substantially like adding, a, a fill-up of gas, for example, your standard fill-up, you're going you're gonna to be adding like 30-odd bucks to, to that, just to give you one example, I don't think Canadians are going to go for that one no. bit.
0: Okay, so we're going to take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk about Andrew Scheer staying on or not staying on as the Conservative Party leader. But I just uh, wanted to add uh, to, to this that I uh, actually went out and filled up my car uh, the other day, and um, even now it cost me 98 bucks. Add 55 cents a liter when this is all said and done. Just forget ninety eight dollars. I mean, it was it was on fumes, right? It probably wasn't going to go another ten feet before it stopped. But <laughs> it was still it was ninety eight dollars. That's a big that's a big well, amount of money I, for and a fill up add, for a car. You
5: can add another uh, fifty to that uh, if if they crank the carbon tax
0: up. Okay, let me take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk about Andrew Shear with Catherine Swift and Dan McTague. So let me just read you a little bit of my, my blog piece, and then i will go back to Catherine and Dan, uh, my blog piece at RoyGreenShow.com. You can read it here. A little bit of what I said. The Conservative Party of Canada, under the stewardship of Andrew Scheer, appeared less focused than the proverbial drunken sailor. And having been a drunken sailor, I can personally testify to this. Repeatedly, the Conservatives managed to mangle opportunities by ignoring the obvious, and Mr. Scheer was almost completely derailed by something as simple the dispatch has the question about his citizenship duality. Look, I'm not jumping ahead of the Ides of March and playing Brutus to Shear's Julius Caesar. Personally, Shear seems to be a nice enough guy. The Conservative Party is well aware I'm small C conservative and was more than likely going to vote CPC. Yet when I quizzed him, I seldom had the sense Andrew Shear was comfortable as leader of the party and poised to hand Trudeau nationally the same message Alberta and Saskatchewan delivered. The Liberal Party of Canada remained a minority government in power not because of a left-wing mainstream media but largely because of the underachieving performance of their conservative opposites. Mr. Scheer should spare the CPC the upheaval of a leadership review and announce he will step aside as leader. There's a footnote here. The Liberals may face an even greater dilemma with Trudeau on the bridge when their minority is voted out as government and it will be do the liberals really want to return to the electorate led by Trudeau? I asked a longtime liberal that question recently. There was no spoken reply. Hello? There was no spoken reply. There was just an eye roll. I just had to get the attention of the studio. Um, apparently there's something more important than paying attention to what we were doing. Anyhow, <laughs> back to Catherine Swift and Dan McTague. What about it, Dan? Let me start with you. You're the 18-year Liberal MP. You're no fan of Justin Trudeau's. What about uh, the issue of uh, of uh, Andrew Scheer stepping aside? What do you say? Well, it's
6: clear that the uh, the drumbeat uh, to have him step down is uh, certainly louder than it has been at any time uh, since the uh, the end of the election, and of course. Uh, As someone who's sort of on the outside, not a member of the party, but certainly someone who supported the Conservatives in the last uh, federal election, certainly Andrew Scheer himself, uh, I did so out of the belief that uh, the country could not uh, afford another two to four years of uh, Justin Trudeau uh, and his gang. Uh, But I also recall the same sort of steps that took place back in 2004 uh, when we won the election as Liberals uh, under Paul Martin, but uh, really gave up a, a majority went to a minority. And I don't recall the time, uh, the knives being it for Stephen Harper. Of course, they were on the upswing, uh, but so too can the argument be made for Conservatives. But, you know, it's it's really a family affair. Uh, historically, Conservatives are well known for taking other leaders. Uh, and of course, uh, this may very well be another manifestation of it. And of course, the I think in all of this, the only folks that are really happy with this are the liberals, uh, because they see an opportunity where, uh, you know, there will be an internal, internecine fight between uh, region to region. Conservatives uh, will be at each other's throats, very much back to where they were prior to the days
2: Mm -hmm. when the Conservative Party was united. It it may, though
0: may, Dan, also involve the, the liberals. The liberals may have their own reality. I just want to say this, Catherine, before I, before I ask you for your thoughts, just 30 seconds here. In 2004, when Paul Martin ran uh, for prime minister, Paul Martin was a very well-known entity in this country. He'd served as the finance minister. He had uh, knocked down the national debt. It's not as though he was an unknown. Mr. Scheer didn't doesn't have anywhere near the profile in 2019 and looking ahead, well, maybe going ahead, that uh, Paul Martin had in two thousand and four. Catherine, what about it?
5: Well, it's it's a, it's a tough one for a whole pile of different reasons, and Dan touched on some of them. Um, I, I do believe, and I read your blog earlier today, Roy. I, I do believe significant damage was done by the by the media. Uh, I, I don't think I have ever seen a pile piling on that like there was on Shear. Uh, It really, and we know partly that's because Trudeau's bribing the media with our tax dollars, and there's all kinds of other reasons, too. But uh, I think, uh, I tend to think at this stage of the game, he's badly wounded, and I don't see him coming back. And some of them were own goals, as as they say. Uh, I agree with you that they... The fact that they mishandled things like questions about the social conservative issues, the you know the right to choose uh, and uh, the you know gay marriage and those issues, they had to expect those questions. And yet it was like they they hadn't anticipated them at all. It, it was things like that that really made me scratch my head. and I know Andrew somewhat, and and uh, he is a very nice person. he's He's got more integrity than than Trudeau will ever have. But I think unfortunately, enough damage has been done. That I believe he should step down sooner rather than later, and not wait till the April leadership uh, convention. You know, yeah, when, I, seems... when
0: I when I when I said about, uh, I just took that little piece out of context in my uh, in my uh, blog that I read. There's a lot more in there about Trudeau as well, not having, at least according to the Parliamentary Ethics Commission, or having only a passing uh, acquaintanceship with, uh, with 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 ethics. But uh, the Conservative Party is really at a very interesting. And still at an opportunist moment here, Dan, they, they, can, they can stay where they are. I don't believe they're going to. They can stay where they are or they can make changes, and I think changes are on the way.
6: Well, it's all about leadership. Uh, it doesn't matter how good your, your policies are. It doesn't really matter how, much, uh, how many members you have, how eloquent they may be, how strong they may be at the end of the day, uh, Canadians. Uh, and I don't say this in a, with any disrespect, but they tend to be extremely superficial. Um, it's how the person looks and maybe other factors. You know, the fact is, the Liberals were able to frame Mr. Shear with the absolute help of the media. There's no doubt that the media was out uh, sharpening their knives. Maybe it's because they were upset with, uh, with Doug Ford, which, of course, was a huge issue in Ontario. And the Liberals played that like a violin. Uh, but the reality here is, and I agree with totally with Catherine, the damage is done, uh, the die is cast, uh, and it's time to move on to another leader. The problem, however, is that are you, as Conservatives, going to continue to change leaders uh, as I change socks every morning, and so for that reason, I think one has to be very careful. Whatever you decide to do, whatever conservatives decide to do, be mindful of the fact that there is a, a you know a longer term game plan here. And I think you know your foreign team has to be uh, you know solid, and you have to be prepared mm-hmm. to uh, to make this uh, several. Well, campaigns before you win the day.
0: There are. I keep seeing emails um, like with names like Ronna Ambrose and 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 Peter McKay. I see that from conservative listeners. Also, when it comes to the to the to the media, the mainstream media was not entirely responsible. For the defeat of Andrew Scheer. If you have a strong message, if you have a strong if you have a strong sense of self, if you're willing to get out and battle, you can battle the media too. And Canadians would respect that. If Canadians had a sense that the media was trying to drown you and you said no you're not, and you get in there and you as John Cretchant used to say, put up your Duke. Um, there would be respect from Canadian voters if if you were to take yeah, that
6: Yeah, I think the debate position. issue, uh, to be honest, Roy, I think having just a handful of people selected to do the debates was a disaster no, in English. I, yeah, I don't disagree on that. I don't well. disagree There's on that. The uh, Conservatives didn't get their message out, and but it doesn't really matter. Whether you're Ronald Ambrose, whether you're Peter McKay, you're going to have baggage, um, and there is, you're going to have to prepare to, to fend off those okay. who are going to fight that because that's true of, of all campaigns.
0: Uh, Catherine, all 10, seconds, you are. 10 seconds left, Catherine. Go ahead.
5: Well, I, I agree with you that um, yes, you can fight the media, but there didn't seem to be enough strength, enough direction, enough actually enough courage of his convictions too, mm-hmm. and and uh, often looked looking out of step and sort of thrown off base. Okay, I think should have, have been expected. I
0: have to stop you. If you want to win, you have to get in the in the ring and put up your duke. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Catherine Swift, Dan me. McTague, <laughs> Thanks so much. We'll talk soon. Okay.
5: You. Okay, Roy. <laughs>
0: Uh, Dr. Christian Luprecht's op-ed was uh, headlined, Why Banning Huawei is Just One of the Series of Steps Canada Needs to Take to Defend Itself. That was in the National Post. Dr. Christian Luprecht joins us, international security expert, professor at the Royal Military College and Queen's University, who testified at the parliamentary hearings over Huawei's 5G Canada effort, and his book is Public Security and Federal Politics. Christian, thank you very much for the time. Uh Let me just ask you to expand on the title. Why banning Huawei is just one of the series of steps Canada needs to take to defend itself. Talk to that, please.
1: Well,
7: think about data to the 21st century, what oil and gas were to the 20th century. And whoever controls those data is also going to be largely in control of much of the geostrategic situation in the 21st century. And the ability to control data flows, uh, to throttle them, uh, to be able to uh, look at those data, to decrypt uh, that data, Um, It's going to give you domain awareness on individuals, on countries, on governments, on companies. Um, And uh, uh, we need to, as a democratic society, think about um, not just about uh, the technology that's in our networks, but what that technology enables. And this is partially, of course, a struggle between uh, democracies that stand for freedom, equality, justice, uh, and equality of opportunity, Um, and authoritarian regimes that have been leveraging um, IT enterprises and the digital environment for purposes not just of censorship and surveillance, but to enable um, authoritarianism and to try to systematically infiltrate critical infrastructure um, in other countries for their own strategic gain and uh, strategic purposes.
0: Um, Huawei also has a checkered history, does it not?
7: Uh, look, it's a it's a it's a difficult and troublesome history, both in terms of uh, alleged and documented um, IP theft, uh, going back perhaps some 20 odd uh, years. Uh, but also, if you just look in terms of its uh, its current history, for instance, the way Huawei has been actively implicated. Um, And and we can demonstrate empirically against the claims by some of senior management in, for instance, selling equipment uh, to local and state authorities in China that has enabled uh, surveillance and suppression in Xinjiang and in serious human rights abuses. Huawei is also extensively involved in multiple countries um, around the world, building uh, digital infrastructure that enables um, authoritarian regimes to stay in power. So there's the smart city security project, as Huawei calls them, the 75 projects, 90 countries. And look, these countries are places like Belarus, Ecuador, Pakistan, Philippines, Venezuela, Bolivia, Zer- Serbia, Zimbabwe, Um, that uh, will enable some uh, very abusive regimes to continue to stay in power and to engage uh, in massive human rights violations. And so the question is to what extent uh, do we in Canada want to give a license to a uh, a company um, that is ultimately complicit in undermining exactly the sort of values and interests that we as Canada stand for, not just for our own country, but for what we believe makes for uh, a stable um, and uh, equitable world.
0: You testified before the parliamentary committee on this issue of uh, Huawei and five G. And are you satisfied with the um, actions, or I can't really call them actions, the uh, what's been happening, uh, what the federal government has done so far, and do the, do you do you get the sense that they really know what's going on?
7: So I think there's two separate issues. One is how do we engage with China and we've had sort of this one-size-fits-all policy and clearly uh, that can work with an actor um, as significant and important but um, also as complex and difficult as China. And so my pitch has been that we need to understand that in some areas uh, China is a partner Um, In some areas, China is a competitor and in some areas, China is an adversary. So we did need a much more nuanced engagement strategy with China overall, in particular on the issue of Chinese uh, technology and digital technology in particular and Huawei. That means that, look, when it comes to mobile phones, they're ultimately insecure anyway. So it doesn't matter which mobile phones we let on the market in Canada and as citizens, uh, I think, have an obligation to press government in general on mobile communications technology to make it much more secure and much more reliable uh, than it currently is. I mean, Canadians are basically tolerating uh, it would be like putting cars on the road that effectively the brakes only sometimes work. Um, That's basically the the mobile communications technology technology that we've been tolerating. But specifically on Huawei, I think what we need to have an informed conversation about is what's known as switches. So those are the internet switches that direct traffic and in particular also mobile telephone tower switches because if you control those switches it means you can control the data flow through those switches you can see and read some of that data flow you can divert that data flow you can throttle that data flow or you can turn it off altogether. and if you look at the actions that china has taken in response to mang manju's detention in vancouver can you imagine um, how we might be uh, curtailing our sovereignty if in the future um, uh, China, through a state-owned company, was able to control data flows in Canada and affect our prosperity uh, by throttling those data flows. Um, And so I think that's what we need as Canadians, need to be conscious about the fact that uh, strategically, this is probably not in our interest.
0: Christian, thank you. It's almost good talking to you. You provide us with a lot of information, a lot to think about. Thanks so much for the time today. It's been my pleasure. All the best. Dr. Christian Lupratz international security expert. He's at uh, the Royal Military College and Queen's University, and he testified at the parliamentary hearings over Huawei and 5G Canada, and his op-ed, Why Banning Huawei is Just One of a Series of Steps Canada Needs to Take to Defend Itself. Joining us on the program to tell us what's been going on in the city of Calgary is Jock Wilson. He's the host of Sports Talk with Jock Wilson on CHQR seven seventy our chorus radio station in Calgary. Jock, thank you for the time. And what's the atmosphere around the team offices among the players, uh, the general manager, and the coaches yesterday? Well, how would, how would you discern that?
1: Well, Roy, I think the best way to describe it: it was dark, it was disturbing, it was it was it was a very very uh, strange week to, to begin with. You know, when it when it all broke with Akeem Alou's allegations towards you know head coach Bill Peters and then obviously the verification of those racist comments it was it was it was really really disturbing and you know not only did it hit you know deep at the fabric of the Calgary Flames organization but the fans and everybody in the National Hockey League because everybody's talking about you know the culture of hockey and how does this affect the culture of hockey and what role does the culture of hockey you know have in these uh, in, in these dealings, and and and, and let's be honest, I, I don't think this is just a hockey culture issue. I, I really do believe it's a sport issue, it's a society issue. You know, there's there's lots of people with these terrible comments out there, and uh, and boy, you know, you, you thought we were behind them, we thought you know we were past that, but uh, obviously we're
0: not. You know, I think there's an evolution taking place in professional sport these days, right across the board. Would you subscribe to that?
1: Yeah, you know, it's it it's been you know some people are saying this is the the hockey's me too movement and 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 I guess in a way it, it probably is the hockey's uh, me too movement because we're going to see probably more and hear more you know about uh, you know potential allegations but as as I say it's uh, this has been going on whether it's gymnastics whether it's mm-hmm. obviously canada whether it's diving canada whether you know just name your sport uh, they, they have had their issues with it. And I think what where the eye-opener is for the National Hockey League and other professional sports leagues, um, I, I don't want to say they don't take it as seriously as, as some of the other high-performance sports organizations, but uh, the other high-performance sports organizations you know, had to take it seriously quicker because the allegations came out sooner. So if you see what's happening with the NSOs, the national sport organizations across this country, Uh, It's now been in place, federally mandated, the fact that they have their safe sport council in play. Every single national sport organization has to have a safe sport policy. Every single national sport organization has to have that safe sport policy on their website. So if individuals have issues with coaches or administrators or anybody in their sport, they can go on and talk to an independent third-party person, usually a lawyer in a lot of cases, and they can make you know, these uh, these claims, and they will be investigated. Now, I don't think the NHL has that in play right now. I don't think the NHLPA has that in play. I don't think, you know, the NFL has that in play. So, you know, do, you know, professional sports now have to follow up because of uh, what we've, you know, seen happen this week?
0: Mm-hmm. been quite a few days, uh, not just in Calgary, but there's been a lot of talk about Mike Babcock as well, who was, of course, fired by the Maple Leafs. In that case, the team was losing. But also questions about Babcock's behavior, Toward players, like asking—I uh, think it was Mitch Marner when he was a rookie—to rate his teammates for their efforts on the ice, and then sharing Marner's evaluation with the team. Uh, these sorts of things. I mean, uh, I, when you look at them now, and and you in, investigate them, or, or or kind of try to try to work out what it, what what's happening in, uh, in 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 hockey and in in pro sports, uh, Jock, I'm. I'm looking at individual uh, organizations, leagues, and how they respond. And let me come back to something you just said about the National Hockey League. The league's been very quiet over the last number of days. Uh, is that the correct action? Do you think? And what do you? Th- how do you expect them to respond?
1: yeah that, that is a, that is a great question, and we're asking those same questions here in Calgary because it it seemed like unfortunately, Brad Trilliving had to be the face yeah. of this controversy and you know, this situation with Bill Peters. And yet this did not happen. these these <laughs> These racist remarks were not even made on the Calgary Flames watch, you know ten years ago in in Rockford. And you know the allegations of physical abuse. By, by Bill Peters, which were verified as well by Rod Brindamore of the Carolina Hurricanes. That happened in a completely different organization, so you know it's, it's very interesting that you haven't really heard a lot from Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the National Hockey League, or Bill Daly, his right hand man, or or even Ron Francis, who was you know the the general manager at the time of the of the Carolina Hurricanes. Exactly. So, it's quite interesting. Peter Carmanos, the owner of Carolina at the time, of course, no longer the owner. He he said he had no idea. He was never told what happened in the chain of command. And he says if he if he did know as the owner, he would have fired Bill Power, uh, Bill Peter's, you know, butt right then and there. So it, it is very intriguing. Now, do I expect something to come up from the NHL? I, I certainly hope it does. And and I don't know what's happening behind the scenes. I wish I did. I'd love to be a fly on the wall, but. Uh, you know hey, the nhl is going to have to come up with some sort of statement don't you
0: think yeah absolutely they have they have no choice but they should have been taking the lead on this exactly yeah. because it wasn't the calgary flames they weren't they weren't the team in question with bill peters when uh, akim aliev was uh, you know assaulted with the n word and, uh, and and peters got physical the, the flames were not the team that were right. involved it was very i thought it was unfair to the flames to have to really Run this publicly. Run with it publicly. It should have been the National Hockey League. It should have been the head of the NHL. It should have been the commissioner who took the lead. Never mind Daly or, or anyone else. Ron Francis. It should have been the commissioner of the National Hockey League. It should have been front and center on this.
1: Yeah, I, I don't disagree in a way. You know, obviously Bill Peters was employed by the Calgary Flames. Yes. The allegations came out when he was, uh, you know, obviously the head coach of the Calgary Flames. So, you know, it, it, it was tough, and, and a lot of people question. You know, whether Brad Trilliving, the general manager of the Flames, you know, did the right thing, you know, you know, waiting as long as he did, doing his, you know, true investigation, which he was looking into. And, you know, even though we got the resignation yesterday from Bill Peters, a lot of people still don't have closure on it because, you know, this was obviously a lawyered-up agreement between the two sides. I'm sure Bill yeah. Peters is still getting some sort of compensation yeah. from the team. But, you know, then you can't come back and, and have lawsuits or anything like that. So it, it, it is, you know, I, like I said, I felt bad for, uh, for Brad Trilliving because he – he did take the brunt of it, and uh, you know what what happened behind the scenes. I, I just don't know. So it's yeah. tough
0: well, you know, I, I'm going to go back to saying that uh, this is a, a league issue. This is now a league-wide issue because they're going to be looking uh, everywhere for 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 other instances, other situations that they may have to deal with. And really, the commissioner should be taking – that's why he's making $5 million a year to take on the very difficult issues. And this is a difficult issue, but the solution is fairly straightforward. Now, what about – Jock, what about the players? Uh, What's happening with the players? Now, the Calgary Flames, um, good hockey team, very Mm -hmm. good hockey team, uh, have some problems. uh, You know, teams go through slumps. But what does this do, do you think, to cohesion um, among players on the Flames and then – beyond the Flames, uh, the players in the National Hockey League. How, how do they respond to all of this? They, I mean, I hear them talking, but how do they really respond?
1: Yeah, you know, and, and again, I guess time will tell. Time will tell, uh, yeah. Won't, won't it, Roy? Because, uh, you know, the, the Flames players, you know, and even today's professional athlete is so well-programmed, what to say, what not to mm-hmm. say. So uh, they're saying all of the right things. And, and you know, the, the interim head coach of the Calgary Flames yesterday, Jeff uh, Jeff Ward, you know, he wanted to change it up a little bit, and and he wanted to loosen up the the mood at the dressing room, and so how did they open practice yesterday? They they play Elton John, and then followed up by Queen, uh, you know, uh, Radio Gaga, so it was... It's like first time ever you've been to a practice at the Scotiabank Saddledome where you know there's there's some good rock and roll music going on and there seemed to be a good uh, a good vibe on the ice with the players and and afterwards the players were saying the right thing. Hey, the Calgary Flames responded with a very very nice win against the Buffalo Sabres, snapping a you know a big long losing streak. You right. know when this uh, when this story all broke this past week, now they're at home and uh, they have the Ottawa Senators in tonight, so we're going to see how this uh, how this team responds right now. You know, will Jeff Ward be able to um, get this team together, get this team on the right track, on the right frame of mind. Um, I, I think there's there, there's a chance, but you know it could be a very very fragile team. I, I'll be honest; I've never been in the situation, so it's it, it's going to be tough to see. Uh, you know what what these guys have to go through and uh, how they do handle it. And uh, yeah. I think there is a good leadership group here, but uh, we'll see.
0: And there'll be reverberations right across the league. And of course, there's mm-hmm. uh, in the National Football League. There's the Colin Kaepernick story, which continues to. Evolve, uh, you know, pro sports is going through an evolution. Jock, thank you so much. Great talking to you. Thanks. Hey, Roy. Always good. All the best. Jock Wilson from CHQR 770 in Calgary. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green.